We will be looking at Article 37 of the Belgic Confession. This afternoon, the Last Judgment. Let's read the article first. Finally, we believe, according to the Word of God, when the time appointed by the Lord, which is unknown to all creatures, is come, and the number of the elect complete, that our Lord Jesus Christ will come from heaven, corporally and visibly, as he ascended, with great glory and majesty, to declare himself judge of the living and the dead, burning this old world with fire and flame to cleanse it. Then all men will personally appear before this great judge, both men, women, and children, that have been from the beginning of the world to the end thereof, being summoned by the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. For all the dead shall be raised out of the earth, and their souls joined and united with their proper bodies, in which they formerly lived. As for those who shall then be living, they shall not die as the others, but be changed in the twinkling of an eye, and from corruptible become incorruptible. Then books shall be opened, and the dead judged, according to what they shall have done in this world, whether it be good or evil. Nay, for every idle word men may speak, they will give account, which the world only counts amusement and jest. And then the secrets and hypocrisy of men shall be disclosed and laid open before all. And therefore the consideration of this judgment is justly terrible and dreadful to the wicked and ungodly, but most desirable and comfortable to the righteous and elect, because then their full deliverance shall be perfected, and there they shall receive the fruits of their labor and trouble which they have borne. Their innocence shall be known to all, and they shall see the terrible vengeance which God shall execute on the wicked, who most cruelly persecuted, oppressed, and tormented them in this world, and who shall be convicted by the testimony of their own consciences, and shall become immortal, but only to be tormented in the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. But on the contrary, the faithful and elect shall be crowned with glory and honor, and the Son of God will confess their names before God his Father and his elect angels. All tears shall be wiped from their eyes, and their cause which is now condemned by many judges and magistrates as heretical and impious will then be known to be the cause of the Son of God. And for a gracious reward, the Lord will cause them to possess such a glory as never entered into the heart of man to conceive. Therefore, we expect that great day with a most ardent desire to the end that we may fully enjoy the promises of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, we have here the last article of the Belgic Confession and the only article in the Belgic Confession devoted to the doctrine of the last things, eschatology. And you perhaps will have noticed as we read through the article that the article touches only on the basic stuff of this doctrine. There's nothing here about the Antichrist, nor about the signs of the times, nor about the intermediate state, nor even about the very prevalent scriptural theme of watching and being ready. And of course, 
because of the time in which the confession was written, prior to the rising of these questions, it does not enter into the question regarding the millennium either. Different positions have been taken about that in the last couple hundred years, premillennialism, dispensationalism, postmillennialism, amillennialism, preterism most recently. But because of the timing of the confession, we could not say what Guido de Bray would have thought about that subject. The article simply does not address it. What we find here in the article is a touching on four aspects of this doctrine. First of all, when Christ will come. Secondly, how he will come. Thirdly, for what he will come. And finally, the comfort of this doctrine for believers. Those four subjects. So we begin with the idea, the question, when will Christ come? I think we may say that there are three things that the confession says about the timing of Christ's coming. First of all, the confession says that this time has been appointed by the Lord. And that implies, of course, that he knows that time as well. It has been appointed by the Lord from eternity. He appointed, in other words, the second coming, as well as the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, before the world began. He had decreed all things. He had decreed the making of the first creation. He had decreed the fall of that creation. He decreed also the redemption of that creation. And he has decreed also the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. That time, therefore, is appointed by him and known to him. That's the first thing the confession says. The second thing that the confession says is that no creature knows this time. Though it's been a tendency of men for many generations to try to predict the time of Christ's coming, this is a time which is unknown and which God intends to be unknown until the Lord himself actually appears. Our Lord Jesus Christ himself warned us against trying to predict the timing of his coming when he said, but of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. And of course, because we do not know, it is our business while we wait for that coming of the Lord to be ready and watching. We must be anticipating that coming, knowing that he is coming. And we must be, while we wait for his coming, going about the business of our lives, the business that God has given to us to do here in the world. This also the Lord taught us in Matthew 24, verses 42 and following. 
Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour that he is not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And, of course, in the parable of the ten virgins, which follows immediately upon that passage, the Lord illustrated this whole idea of readiness with the five virgins who had oil for their lamps and unreadiness with the five virgins who did not have oil for their lamps when the bridegroom came. So we do not know the day or hour of Christ's coming, and we must always be ready. And part of being ready is going about our business from day to day, as if, we might say, he were never coming. Not trying to predict the day of his coming and prepare for it in the sense that we go off to some mountaintop to watch. But going about our business. The third thing that the confession says is that this coming of Christ will be when the number of the elect is complete. We believe, according to the word of God, when the time appointed by the Lord is come and the number of the elect complete, that our Lord Jesus Christ will come from heaven. Now, there's not any passage in Scripture that teaches this explicitly, I think. Nevertheless, it's a teaching that is derived from the teaching of the Scriptures. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter talks about this second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and about those who deny this coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, with regard to the promise of this coming, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. He's long-suffering towards his elect. He's uh, not willing that any one of his elect should perish, and therefore he is waiting for the coming to be when the elect have all been gathered into the kingdom. Now just a couple words about the signs of the coming as well. Um, these signs, we, Christ says, indicate to us that he is coming. Matthew 24 and other passages talk about the signs of his coming. And there are some who, who take these signs then and look for uh, increase of intensity in these signs. 
For example, an increase in the intensity of persecution or an increase in the apostasy of the church or, or various things of that sort. And they say, well, we don't know exactly when Christ is coming, but we know that his coming has to be very close because we see the increasing intensity of these signs of his coming. Personally, I don't think that the signs are intended to be read that way. I think that Christ gives us those signs to show us that he is coming, and that he is coming quickly, but not so that we can say, well, he must be coming in the next 20 years, or the next generation, or the next two generations, or whatever it might be. The signs simply tell us that he is coming, and that he is coming quickly, not when he is coming. There have been many times in the history of the New Testament church when people thought things are so bad that Christ's coming must be very close. And then hundreds of years have passed after that. So that's the subject of when Christ will come. The second subject that the confession addresses is how he will come. And I think we may say the confession says two things about this manner of his coming. First of all, his coming will be corporal and visible. And what the confession means by that, of course, is that he will return to the earth in his human nature. He will return corporally. He has ascended from earth into heaven in his human nature. And according to his human nature, he is now seated at the right hand of his Father in heaven. But there will come a day, the day of his return, when he comes back to earth in his human nature, and he will come visibly in his human nature. This is something that our Lord also teaches us in Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verses 26 and 27. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. And in Revelation 1, verse 7 as well, where John is anticipating the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 1, verse 7, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so. Amen. So he will come corporally and visibly. The second thing that the confession says about the manner of his coming is that he will come with glory and majesty. When he was on the earth in his first coming, his human nature was humbled. He came emptied of his glory. But that human nature has now been glorified and exalted to the heavenly places, and it shines with the brightness of that divine glory that is his. It's the glory that was seen by his apostles on the Mount of Transfiguration. 
And that glory is the glory with which he will return. That's the glory that will be visible to men who are on earth at the time of his second coming. He will come with glory and with majesty. It will be very evident to all, simply by looking at him, that he is king of kings and lord of lords. So that's the how of his coming. The third subject that the confession touches on here is the purpose of his coming, the for what. And the confession has really two things to say about that. First of all, it talks about it at length about his judgment of all men. That's the most prominent subject in this article, the judgment. He comes to judge all men, men, women, and children that have been from the beginning of the world to the end thereof. All men will personally appear before this great judge. And the confession outlines then a series of events related to this great judgment that is coming. First of all, men will be summoned to the throne of Christ by the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. That's in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16 reads as follows. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So that's the first thing that happens. Christ descends, and all men are summoned to his judgment seat by the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. Then all men are raised from the dead. All those who are in the graves will come forth. As Jesus says in John 5, verses 28 and 29, some to the resurrection of life and some to the resurrection of condemnation. Revelation 20, verse 13 also talks about this. The dead will be raised. Revelation 20, verse 13 The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. So the bodies of all those who have died, both righteous and wicked, elect and reprobate, will be raised from the dead on that day. And that implies, of course, the whole subject of the intermediate state which our confession does not enter into, but which we can say a couple words about. Now, we know from the scriptures that when we die, our souls go to heaven to be with Christ. Today, Jesus said to the thief on the cross, you shall be with me in paradise. Paul anticipated uh, not falling asleep at his death, but being with Christ, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, we see the souls of the martyrs under the altar crying to the Lord for their vindication. 
and white robes are given to them. That passage implies that they are living, that they are living in glory, but that they are waiting for the final vindication and the final judgment, the judgment that comes with our Lord Jesus Christ's second coming. And Jesus spoke in John 8 of Abraham as uh, anticipating his coming. Abraham, he said, waited for my day. So Abraham was alive and with God in the heavenly places. God is not the God of the dead, nor the God of the sleeping. God is the God of those who are living, living with him in heaven, as well as those who are truly alive on earth. And so there is this intermediate state. Our souls go to heaven, our bodies to the grave. And that intermediate state lasts as long as our Lord Jesus Christ does not return. When he returns, that state for both elect and reprobate will be brought to an end. Bodies will be reunited with souls and all will receive reward according to their works. The third thing that the confession says about this judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ is has to do with those who remain on earth, who are still alive on earth, when he comes. And of them, the scriptures say that they will be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. That's, of course, about the elect. And we assume, then, that the wicked who are still alive on the day of Christ's return will be cast into hellfire. So that's the third thing. Those who remain alive will be transformed in a moment. The fourth thing that the confession talks about is the opening of the books. I think it's important here to recognize that the scriptures talk about two kinds of books in this connection, in connection with this last judgment. Again, we turn to Revelation chapter 20, verse 12 this time. Revelation 20, verse 12, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And then if you go down to the last part of that verse, And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. So there is, there are books in which our works are recorded. And at the last day, the Lord will open those books. I, I don't think we have to take those books as literal books. The Lord does not need books to remind him of what we have done. He knows everything. There's nothing hidden from him in that day. But what it means is that all the works that we have done will come before the face of this great judge. Everything that we have done will come before the face of this judge. So there's, there are the books then that uh, contain a record 
of our deeds. But there's also the book of life. That book is mentioned also in Revelation 20, verse 12. In between those two sentences we read about the books, and that sentence says, another book was opened, which is the book of life. So we have the books in which are recorded the deeds, and then we have the book of life, that other book. And this is the book in which the names of the elect are recorded. Revelation 13, verse 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That is, all who dwell on the earth, that's all the wicked. Only those whose names have not been written, uh, all those whose names have not been written in the book of life will worship the beast. But those whose names are written there will not. Revelation 13, verse 8. And also in Revelation 17, verse 8, a similar verse. Revelation 17, verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. And that's an important distinction that we understand this because in that great day of judgment, there are two things that happen. There is, first of all, a division between the sheep and the goats, as Matthew 25 teaches us in the parable of the sheep and the goats. Christ makes the division. The sheep stand on his right hand and the goats on his left. There's that, that division exists, and our Lord makes it very evident then on the day of judgment. He divides the sheep from the goats. They're no longer mixed together as they are on earth. They're separated from one another. And they're separated because there are different judgments, different purposes of God awaiting each of them. And after that separation of the sheep and the goats, everyone, both of the sheep and the goats, is judged according to his works. There have been some in recent uh, years who have said that there is a final justification of the believers before the judgment seat of Christ. And I do not believe they're wrong about that. We'll come to that in a moment. But they have also said, some have also said, that this final justification is different from our justification here on earth because it is by works, at least in part. Justification here on earth is by faith alone. But that final justification, they say, is by faith and works. That is a um, serious error, I think should be rejected out of hand as contrary to the teaching of the scriptures. Our justification is always in and only in our Lord Jesus Christ. We are righteous in him. And that's why there can be a, a separation of the sheep and the goats in the judgment. 
Nevertheless, there is a judgment both for the wicked and the righteous according to their works. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 teaches us that. 2 Corinthians 5 verses 10 and 11. The Apostle Paul says there, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. So there is a judgment according to works that follows the separation of the sheep and the goats. Every work that the wicked do is known to God. And the Lord Jesus Christ says to the wicked, Depart from me, you evildoers. I do not know you. I do not acknowledge that you have ever done anything in my name. You are not mine. Your reward is everlasting destruction. But that reward is apportioned according to the level, the amount of their wickedness. I think there are degrees of judgment in hell just as there are degrees of judgment here on earth. But the righteous also are judged according to their works. The confession talks about every idle word being known to God and being judged, every secret of our hearts being exposed, all of our hypocrisy, all the the hypocrisy of which we've been guilty being made known to men. There's nothing that we have done that will be hidden and we will be judged according to those works. That is, we will receive a reward according to works. The first will be last and the last first. To his elect those for whom he died and who are justified in his blood. He says, come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So that's first, the judgment. But the confession also mentions at the very end of the first paragraph of the article that another purpose of his coming is to burn up this old world with fire and flame to cleanse it. And this teaching, of course, comes from 2 Peter chapter 3, as well as other passages of the scriptures. 2 Peter 3, verses 10 to 13. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So he will burn up this old world and create a new heavens and a new earth in which there will be perfect and everlasting righteousness. Those are the two purposes of his coming then, judgment and the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. We come finally to the subject of the comfort of this judgment 
for us. We should note at the beginning that to the wicked, this idea of Christ being the judge before whom they will have to stand and to whom all their works will be known is a matter of terror. They have told themselves throughout their lives there is no God. Or if there is a God, he will be merciful to me. I can do as I please. Or if we cannot count on his mercy, we can at least count on him being blind. He will not see what I am doing now. They always have ways to assure themselves that there will be no judgment of their evil deeds. And so they go on in their wickedness, presumptuously against the knowledge that God has revealed to them in his word and impresses upon their hearts. When finally the Lord Jesus appears then, they will be so terrified that they will call to the mountains to fall on them. Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 to 17. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? So it's a day of terror for the wicked, but for the righteous, it's a day of comfort. And here we ought to notice how much time the confession devotes to describing the comforts of this day the comforts which will come to us in that day, but also the comforts which are ours now as we anticipate that day. First of all, it is the day of full deliverance and the finishing of the work of salvation. What God has begun in us, he will complete. Nothing at that day will remain undone. Even our bodies will be raised from the corruption of the grave, made new and glorious and spiritual and powerful like the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, the confession says, we will receive the fruits of our labor and trouble. I think that phrase, the fruits of our labor and trouble, is significant It means, first of all, I think, that God recompenses us according to our works. We talked about that. We receive a reward according to our works. Some receive a greater reward than others. Paul is very clear about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. That's one half of what the confession is talking about here, being recompensed by God according to our works. And that recompense is, of course, by grace alone. It's not a recompense we've earned and not a recompense that we have deserved because the works that we have done are works that he worked in us by the power of his grace. And we 
can only thank him for doing that and for seeing fit to reward and to crown his own work in us. But the confession also talks about our trouble, being uh, receiving the fruits of our trouble. God also recompenses all that sorrow and all that pain and all that affliction and all that uh, trouble that we have had to endure here on earth. He pays us back, as it were, according to the measure of the suffering we have endured. Remember what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us. That's very important language, works for us, a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So there's recompense also according to our suffering, our suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ and all those many afflictions that we have had to bear patiently here in the world. That's the second thing the confession says. The third thing the confession says is we will receive at that time a public and complete vindication. In this very limited sense, I think we may talk here about justification. Our justification is complete and perfect in the shedding of the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. The full debt of our sins was paid at that point. But at the final day, when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, Christ will make his sentence with regard to each of his elect absolutely clear to everyone. He will publicly declare that his elect belong to him, that we are his, that we have been justified in his blood. And that declaration of Christ will silence forever all our accusers. No one will ever again be able to bring against us any accusation. That's what this means, I think. And, and that declaration will silence forever the voice of our conscience which testifies against us. There will be no more bitter regrets, no more guilt, no more agony and anguish over the terribleness of our sins. It will all be wiped away by the power of Christ's declaration. So that's the third thing, a public and complete vindication. Fourthly, the confession says, and this we probably would not say if it were not in the scriptures, but the confession is drawing directly from the scriptures. We will see the vengeance of God on his enemies and also, therefore, on our enemies, those who have been our enemies because we have been righteous here on earth. The Psalms talk about this in numerous places where we refer to just one psalm tonight, Psalm 58, verse 10. Psalm 58, verse 10. And 11. The righteous shall rejoice when he sees the vengeance. 
He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked, so that men will say, Surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely he is God who judges in the earth. The righteous will see that vengeance. They will even, that psalm says, rejoice. Rejoice because the enemies of God are silenced forever, because they are now free from the oppression of those enemies. That's the fourth thing. The fifth thing that the confession says is that we will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. A crown of glory such as has never entered into the heart of man to conceive. We will be partakers of the glory of Christ himself, a glory beyond our imagination now. Sixthly, the confession says, Christ will confess our names before God and the angels. I think what this means is that he will claim us as his own before God and the angels. He will say, this one is mine. I have purchased him with my blood. He does not belong to the world. He does not belong to Satan. I have redeemed him. And when he makes that claim for us, he will not be ashamed of us. Poor and weak and sinful and insignificant as we are, He will not be ashamed. Seventh, every tear will be wiped away. Every sorrow, every pain, every trouble will be ended forever. There will be no more tears. All will be everlasting joy. Eighth, our cause will be known as just. Notice how the confession puts it. Their cause, which is now condemned by many judges and magistrates as heretical and impious, will then be known to be the cause of the Son of God. The cause is mocked and rejected now. It's the cause of the gospel. It's the cause of the glory of God. It's the cause of righteousness. Wicked men do not believe in that cause. They think it's foolishness. But in the great day of the Lord Jesus Christ, they will know that that was the righteous cause, the cause which receives its vindication and its completion in Christ's coming. And finally, the confession says, all the promises will be realized in full. Nothing that God has spoken throughout the scriptures to his elect people will then be lacking from them. They will have every promise in its fullness. Life and rest and peace and joy and fellowship with God and a part in the body of Christ, the inheritance of the kingdom of heaven, and all the glories that belong to it. And so for us, people of God, this day is a day to pray for. Come, Lord Jesus. Yea, come quickly. And while we wait, 
We must be steadfast in the faith, faithful in the duties God has given us to perform here on earth. Steadfastness first. Secondly, patient, knowing that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day, but enduring through every trial and temptation, because we expect the great day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, never letting go of our hope. Lift up your heads, for your redemption draws near. That's the word of our Lord Jesus Christ to us. May God bless us with his word.